the last few weeks to give you kind of the, the broad uh, reminder of the letter that we're in. So it's this letter of Hebrews, and it's called Hebrews because it's written largely to an early Jewish Christian audience. And that audience had a lot of shared experience, shared language, shared uh, religious vernacular that, that they could use and draw from in order to understand the radical nature of what Jesus had come and done in fulfilling a lot of what had been pointed to in the, in the religion of, of many of their experience, of many of their youth. Um, it, and so what these chapters are specifically doing are working through the mechanics of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the deep meaning and significance of those events to the everyday circumstances that these Hebrews were living through. And the reason why we're in this letter at this particular moment in time is you can tell as you read the letter that this is a community in a profound season of suffering and difficulty. They are uh, in, they're, they're exhausted, they're weary from various kinds of things, and history helps us a little bit to figure out what those might have been, probably persecution from the dominating Roman Empire, probably the fact that many of them would have left uh, family and friends to enter into this early Christian movement and were likely being told by all these people, why are you doing that? What's the point? What's it worth going off and living by this, this whole other way of being just come home, come home and be with us, be with us again? And then they're also almost certainly facing just the stuff of life that all of us go through, their own sin, the sin of others, and the way that that wounds and harms. And they're, they're in need, to use the, the word of the author here, they're in need of perseverance. You're in need of perseverance. And my goodness, if there's one thing that I would speak over our community in this past season and where we are now is that we are in a season where we are in need of perseverance. Can I get an amen on that? Right? Like, amen. Right? Like, we are in need of perseverance. It's been interesting. I'm going to try and get out of the sun. might just creep closer towards you, Arthur, over time. Thank you, Dean. It's been interesting as we've been headed into the season where life is going back to normal, sort of, right? Because in one sense, there is this hopefulness of, oh, cool, I, you know, get to be back at gatherings, and oh, cool, the schools might be different, or whatever, whatever, whatever your thing is that you're latching onto. At the same time, I think that a lot of us are emerging from all of this and kind of looking around, observing the damage that this last year has done for us. And instead of this hopeful moment, this joyful moment of rediscovery of life as usual, we're looking around and actually feeling ourselves in a, in a more mournful place. We're feeling ourselves uh, confused. In, in the discipleship content that we do, uh, when we talk about the, the need for grief in the life of a believer, one of the steps of that is called uh, embracing the confusing in-between. When you feel like your grief and difficulty should be over, and yet there's these lingering impacts, we've called that the confusing in-between. And I feel like that's where we're living right now, is in the confusing in-between. Because we feel like, yeah, things are better. It's really nice to go into Target with my mask off or whatever it is. But somehow that didn't lift all of the difficulty and heaviness of this past year off of me. So what do I do with that now? 
Where do I go with that? Is there sufficient space for me to ever actually fully process that such that I can emerge from it with, with some kind of hopefulness for what lies ahead of me? And I think it's precisely into that space that the letter of Hebrews is written. And the enormous relevance of what we'll talk about today uh, really meets us in that specific place. And I, and I want to make that connection for you. I do want to start a little bit higher level, though, because sometimes what we're talking about here, and, and maybe you heard it as Dean read, what we're talking about here are the mechanics behind why it is that Jesus's death solves something about your and my eternal condition before God. How it steps in and somehow, to use the language repeated throughout the scriptures, forgives my sin. What are the mechanics there? How does that actually work? Some of you have probably been around church for some amount of time. And if someone asked you, exactly how is it that the death of this first century Jewish carpenter does anything eternal for you, anything of deep soul level significance, you'd probably, like I would most of the time, honestly, before even doing some of this study, would probably struggle to exactly articulate how those two things are linked. And that's what we're going to talk about here today. But in order to do that, I do want to say that there is a simple version of this, which is the idea that God, because of sin, is uh, angry at the world, and you and I are complicit in that, and so someone had to stand in the way in order to, um, in order to allow me to have a ticket into heaven one day when I die. There are aspects of that story that are absolutely dead-on accurate. But there are aspects of that, the sort of classic, if you were to die tonight, what would you say? And would you actually get into heaven and why? That just don't fit, honestly, with the entire world of the New Testament and specifically the world of Hebrews. Because the the situation is is not um, wholly different than that. It is just entirely more significant than that. Your problem is far deeper than what that articulates. And the solution is far grander than what that simple articulation basically demonstrates about what Jesus did and what you needed. Because here's the fundamental problem that the scriptures are trying to solve. It has kind of three aspects to it. One is the fact that heaven and earth, God's space and human space, was always meant to overlap. That we were always meant to dwell where God dwells. That we were meant to be in the presence of God, this this one who created us, that that is the relationship, the nearness, the proximity that we were made for. And that in that presence, in that nearness, in that proximity to God, in that overlap of God's space and our space is where our home, the, the, the home of our souls truly is. And what happened because of the rebellion of of the first human beings is that that space was separated such that now heaven and earth are divided from each other and that God's space no longer overlaps with humanity's space. And so the division of heaven and earth explains so much of why we experience the world the way that it is. It is because we are not breathing the air, if you will, in which we truly flourish. And so too is even creation around us, not in the environment, not to, to, to use sort of a, a double meaning here, that, that creation is not planted in the soil 
that is best for its flourishing. And so when we look around at a world marred by sin, marred by corruption, uh, uh, even creation itself that, that, is, that is wallowing under, under the exploitation of human beings, we see the reality, we see the natural outgrowth of the fact that heaven and earth are now separate to the point where the Apostle Paul says things like, not only do you and I groan because of our sinfulness, because of the hurt and brokenness that we experience from others, but creation itself groans because it is outside of that environment within which it was made to flourish, namely the overlap of heaven and earth. The second aspect of what the scriptures are trying to help us see is that there is a specific job description for human beings that you and I were made for. The fancy Christian word for this is vocation. And that's a word that's been taken up more widely in culture. But this idea that human beings were created for a very specific purpose. And that purpose was to experience that proximity to God and to experience it in worshipful obedience, joyful obedience to him, and then to serve that which we were placed in, namely creation itself, to serve creation for its flourishing. That that's what it means to be human according to the scriptures. That's the human job description. That's the human vocation. And one of the things that happened when Adam and Eve, our first parents, walked away is that they walked away from both aspects of that. They said, we do not want to be in joyful obedience to God. We want to be in joyful obedience to our own selves, to our own desires. And we don't want to serve creation. We want creation to serve our pleasures and desires and demands and to give us power. And so in, in giving up that human vocation, it's not just that we were bad little girls and boys who should have behaved ourselves better. It was that we walked away from the truest definition of what it means to be human. And you see the destructiveness of this reality all around us. It's not just that we don't play well together. It is that we continue to believe in so many of the conversations around identity right now and all these things are basically a belief that has been there from literally the foundation of the world that human beings ought to be defined by our deepest desires. That if you want to figure out who you truly are, what it means to be truly yourself, you look inside and you say, what are my desires? What do, what do, what do my internal desires tell me the pleasurable life would be? And then you should have unfettered access to pursue that. And that is not a 2021 dynamic that's all of a sudden out of nowhere. It has a different kind of contour in our time. But that is what humanity has always been wrestling under, is which definition of what it means to be truly human is actually accurate. And which will bring what we long for, this sense of return to being truly ourselves. The final thing that the big story of the scriptures is trying to show us about the problem of the world and its solution is that each of us, yes, are individually complicit in it. That each of us in our own way turns from the way that God calls us to live and become complicit in our own destruction in the destruction of the world and the communities around us and in the destruction of creation itself. And all of those things need a solution, not merely that last one. To only say that that last one is what needs 
to be overturned, what needs to be addressed, is to turn the story of the Bible into this oversimplified reality that what God wants are good little girls and boys, and when we misbehave, he gets really, really angry, and he needs someone to pay uh, for that anger. And once it's paid, then we get to go actually live this beautiful, wonderful, ethereal, soul, uh, disembodied life in heaven with him. As the great New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, he says, sometimes when we tell that narrative, we turn John 3.16 into not for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, but for God so hated the world that he killed his only son. Now hear me, don't hear what I'm not saying. There is an aspect of what we'll talk about today that deals with God's wrath over sin. God's wrath over sin is real. It is part of what's going on at the cross. God's wrath is poured out on his son. But that is not the sum total of what, of what we are watching there. Because if it's grounded, as John 3.16 actually says, in the love of God, there's actually something far more powerful being pursued through the cross than that you might get a golden ticket into heaven one day. So let's look at this. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Okay, like we're jumping dead into the middle of a conversation. So this is your first time here. You're like, what are we talking about? What he's talking about here is that he's, uh, the author has been walking us through this comparison between the Old Testament tabernacle and what happened through Jesus at the cross. And what the Old Testament tabernacle is, now here's some of the contours of the story that I was just telling in what's going on in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the place where God graciously chooses to actually be present in the midst of this world. It's not a metaphor. It's not a symbol. It's where his feet actually rest in this world. Now you say, I thought that that was impossible. Yes, it is, which is why it exists within this tent. And that tent, much like a, a fortress or a safe might have, is guarded from the outside world. In fact, God's presence uh, lives within the boundaries of, of the whole t tabernacle setup and then within a tent and then there's two rooms and it's in the inner room of that one. And so the whole thing is meant to picture the fact that yes, God rests. God has graciously chosen not to completely peace out from the human story and yet he rests in a way where he must be hidden in the tabernacle. And then what we're told here as we continue going is that the copies, this is a copy, this is a model of what actually happens with, with Christ's death and with him presenting himself to the Father. And the word used here is model, right? And, and I don't know about you, I, I grew up a little bit, I wasn't that crafty, but I grew up a little bit doing like model airplanes. Anybody here like a model airplane person? Anybody? Anybody? It's okay. Nobody. No one's ever made a model airplane. Have you heard of this? How many people have heard of model airplanes? Okay, just making sure that this is lit, right? What's a model airplane? Model airplane is not an airplane. It doesn't fly. It doesn't take passengers on a red eye to L.A. But what it does do is it shows you what a plane looks like and what its basic functions are, even though it itself cannot do those functions. And it does it at a far smaller scale, okay? That's the word that's going to be used here. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, that's our word model there, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. The high priest uh, enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. We'll talk about that in a second. For then he would not have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So what was done in the tabernacle, what was done in the temple, is a model of what Jesus actually goes and does post his sacrifice. Okay, You're hearing that basic even if you don't understand the whole thought world, conceptual world, the Old Testament or the New Testament. Are you tracking with that? There's a model going on here. So let me just walk you through what's being talked about here. Excellent choice, you guys. Way to go. Um, yeah, you guys can go too. Um, what they're talking about here is something called the Day of Atonement. This was a once a year. It was the sacrifice of all sacrifices. Everything that happened in the t- tabernacle and the temple throughout the course of the year would culminate. This is the Super Bowl of sacrifices. And let me just give you the, the basic outline of the Day of Atonement. By the way, this is Yom Kippur. Um, those of you who grew up in the Northeast probably got off for Yom Kippur. Maybe you didn't know what it was for. Yom is the word for day. Kippur is the, is the Hebrew word for atonement. There you go, Yom Kippur. It's normally uh, sometime in September. This is, this is what that was in ancient times. So uh, without going through all of Leviticus 16, that's where this, this whole setup um, is, is articulated in the Bible. Here's what would happen. Chief priest, head of, head of the priest, head honcho of the religious system, he, we're told that he puts on white linen clothes at the beginning of the day and washes himself a bunch of times. Those white linen cloths represent both purity because he's going before God, but also they're the, they're the clothes of a servant, of a slave in that time. And so normally he would be in this enormous, beautiful regalia. Think of like, you know, college graduations when these PhD people come down with their funky hats and all that stuff. Like normally he'd be all tricked out. Today, uh, he, he's, just, he's just in this 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 bare bones linen getup to represent um, how, how lowly his position on the day, because the whole idea is he's going to go into the actual presence of God. Only once a year would this happen. He's going to stand in the actual place, not the metaphorical place, not the symbolic, the actual place where God's presence is. There were two goats involved in this. You're probably more familiar with the one goat. The one goat was called the scapegoat. Have you ever heard that term? Who's heard the term scapegoat? We'll make this participatory theater. Good. The scapegoat, it comes from this concept because uh, scapegoat actually comes at the end. That one's role. The other goat would be killed and its blood would then be brought into that, that tabernacle, brought into that tent. And first, that first room, the outer room, would be sprinkled with blood. We'll talk about why that is. And then uh, a bull would be killed, and, and the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat would then be brought into that actual inner place where God's presence truly rested. And that place would be sprinkled with a whole bunch of blood. And in that moment, that human being is actually standing in the true presence of the creator of the universe. And the reason why we're told that that priest had to bring in blood with him is because God had made provision. He had chosen a system by which that, as wonderful as the chief priest may have been, he was sinful and broken and marred by this world just like the rest of us. But God said, if you bring a substitute that represents you 
into that place. And that one pays the full penalty of what you deserve to pay for your brokenness, for your sin. If that one is destroyed the way that you ought to be destroyed in my holy, perfect, pure presence, then I will allow you for this brief moment to do what you need to do in standing before me. Again, beautiful provision, amazing thing that a person could be let in. It was for a split second once a year. And it was after an elaborate means by which it was, it, was, it was shown again and again, demonstrated before the eyes of everyone. It is only because there is a representative substitute going in with that human being that that human being is not utterly destroyed by the presence that's in there. Now, what the letter of Hebrews is trying to do is it's, trying, it's not putting too fine a point on it, but it is saying that everything that happens in the death resurrection and ascension of Jesus coordinates to aspects of that, of particularly that single day. So here's what I want you to picture. I want you to picture a split screen. I can't think of many shows that do this anymore, but a split screen. And, and, on, and on this side, you have the, the goings on of the Day of Atonement. You have the chief priest getting ready. You have the chief priest doing these various sacrifices. You have the chief priest going into the tabernacle. On this side, you have all of the events around the crucifixion and, and eventual resurrection of Jesus. And if you picture these two together, the putting on of the linen cloths at the beginning of the day, the becoming uh, like a servant is Jesus's incarnation. It's Jesus putting on human flesh and putting on human flesh in order to be a servant. The, the uh, oh, I skipped the scapegoat because what happens at the end of all of these things is that the chief priest ultimately comes out and it's an exciting thing for the chief priest to come, come out because it means that he wasn't destroyed. It means that he's not dead. Legend has it they would tie a rope on his, on, around his ankle so that in case he went, they could pull him out. So he'd come out. It'd be an exciting thing. God accepted our sacrifice. And then what would happen is he would go to the scapegoat. He would lean, uh, the Hebrew is he would lean all of his weight upon this goat, right? Like a goat and like a real goat. And he would pray the sins of all of Israel onto that goat. And then that goat would be released. It'd be kicked into the wilderness and the people would rejoice because it meant that through this day of atonement, their sins had really and truly been dealt with for the, for the past year. That all of their preparation for it, because what you would do as, as, a, as a person, as a member of the nation of Israel at that time, is you would prepare the whole week. You're trying to remember all of your sins so that when the chief priest prayed, all of them got on the head of that scapegoat. Okay. Let's go back to your split screen. So you got Jesus putting on human flesh. Then, then you have the, the, the killing. You, you have the shedding of blood of the bull and the goat. By the way, the bull is, is for the chief priest's sin. The goat is for the sins of all the people. So you have all of the sins of God's people being poured out, right? This is Jesus bloodied on the cross, right? There's a reason why, why God chose such a gruesome death for his son, so that we might see what it meant for the giver of life to lose his life. That it, was, that it was a real giving. And so the blood is poured out on that cross. And how often does the New Testament talk about the blood of Jesus? I got one back here. Then Jesus, as he dies, what, what this passage specifically is trying to tell us is the next place that he goes is not into a tomb 
Because that's, that's to misunderstand the profound significance of what's going on. Instead, upon his death, he, just like that chief priest, is now entering into the very presence of God. And we are told that unlike the priest who has to bring in blood so that he is not destroyed, Jesus brings his very being into God's presence. Because Jesus is the only human being who has ever lived who can stand in the presence of God and not be utterly destroyed. He is the perfect sacrifice himself. Do you see what this is doing? It's saying he's not just the perfect and better high priest, he's the perfect and better sacrifice. And so he presents himself before God, even as, now picture, picture in your split screen, the, the high priest going in nervously, checking to make sure that that rope is still around his ankle, making sure, looking down, saying, we did all this right, right? We did all this right. And then going in and sort of shutting his eyes and bowing his head and hoping that God receives his sacrifice. We are told that Jesus goes in confident, and do you see what Jesus is in that moment? He is our representative sacrifice before God. And that God accepts him as the representative of those whose sin is represented by the blood that has been shed. So this is why it says that, that when Jesus goes in, there's a sense in which we go in with him. We sing the song, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Then what? My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. What does thence mean? I don't know. I had to look it up. It means that no tongue can bid me to leave where he now is. Why? Because my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. He is my representative. The blood that he shed was blood that was mine to shed. But he goes in instead with my name on his heart, with my name on his hands. And he stands before God and God says over his son, acceptable, accepted. Which means he says over you and me, acceptable, accepted, forgiven, cleansed, whole. not where the day of atonement ends though is it because then the chief priest comes out and when the chief priest comes out it means that the sacrifice was accepted and it means that now the chief priest can really put his hands symbolically on the goat and says your sins have truly been dealt with they've been taken away this is the meaning of Jesus' resurrection because he doesn't stay in the presence of God. He comes back in order to show us I was accepted. I wasn't destroyed in the presence of God. In, in fact, death was undone in my case in the presence of God. And this is your sure confidence that your sin truly has been laid on another and forever cast away, forever kicked out. Listen to the language that's, that's said here. There's so much. I don't want to just reread the passage. Let me read from verse 26. 
for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, look, when he appears the next time, it's not to show us that sin has been dealt with. It's to welcome us into eternal salvation because he's already appeared to show us that sin has been dealt with. This word here, that's what I was trying to find. This word for put away sin is one of my favorite words in the entire New Testament. It has this very nuanced meaning. It's not the word that's usually talked about. Talk about the forgiveness of sins or Christ bearing of sins. It's uh, the, the literal translation here of this Greek word is it's a refusal to recognize the validity of something. It's nullification is the closest single English word. Let me read that again. A refusal to recognize the validity of something. And what did Jesus do that to? Your junk, your sin, your shame, the penalty that you deserve. God now, because your high priest and perfect sacrifice has gone into his presence, refuses to acknowledge the validity of what you deserve for your sin. And so Jesus comes out in his resurrection and says, fully finished, fully complete, right? It was complete on the cross. The resurrection in some ways is an accommodation to us understanding what's going on in heaven because of what Jesus did. He was eternally resurrected, but he came back like that high priest and he came out. And just like you did, we should all celebrate because we can have confidence that God now refuses to acknowledge the validity of the thing that most wars with us. But, but hear this, right? That's dealing with that third thing. Here's the other two parts of it. What Jesus did is, do you hear what he did? There was a sense in which in his very being, he brought, yes, heaven to earth in the incarnation. But do you hear what's going on here? In becoming our representative our representative substitute, Jesus also brought earth to heaven. That in Jesus, heaven and earth are now coming together. This is why the craziest thing I think that the New Testament ever says about you and me is that do you know why there's not a tabernacle and temple anymore? It's because God's presence does not need to hide any longer. But God's presence can actually dwell out in the world. And do you know where it says God's presence dwells? In you and in me, we are the temple. We are the tabernacle. That's banana stuff. This is how significant what Jesus has done is. We so often think about Jesus bringing heavenly realities to earth that we underplay that he has brought earth. He has brought your little teeny tiny insignificant broken messed up story to heaven and said, God, this belongs here. And God says, because of you, son, it does, and it can dwell here, and it can be dealt with here. The other thing that's going on here is that human beings, far from just, right, because the whole story is not that you and I need a golden ticket like Charlie to God's Willy Wonka chocolate factory in heaven. That is not the story. The story is that we have ceased to be what it means to be human, and something needs to restore us to that vocation. And this is what Jesus is doing in being our representative substitute. 
He brings us with him into God's heavenly presence and then recreates us steadily over time, not into just good little boys and girls as if all that God cared about was some sort of eternal moral scale that you need to make sure that you have a passing grade on somehow, some way. No, what he wants are alive human beings dwelling with him. And that's what Jesus is doing. It's not just moral reformation. It's taking you from spiritual death to spiritual life such that you can be human again. And this is the steady work of sanctification. This is why all of this, the best way to conceive of what's happening here is this is new creation. This is new creation. This is you and I being remade into the image of God the way that we were attended. It's creation itself looking in going, this is the best shot that we've ever had at being restored forever is the people of God actually picking up our human vocation. And it is the best chance communities and cities and states and nations have is that the people of God, my goodness, would be the people of God. Because that's what God always intended. Not just some guinea pig moral experiment that he came in and rescued us from. This is the story you're living in. There's this beautiful scene at the end of uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Does anybody know this movie? Put your hand in the air. Pan's Labyrinth, Guillermo del Toro. Uh, couldn't recommend this movie more. This beautiful scene at the end of that movie, and that scene is basically set up. Uh, you might know it by the, the movie poster. Is this weird, like, fawn-looking thing who has eyes in its hands, and so anytime it wants to see it, does this. Um, that's not relevant to what I'm going to say, but that's how you would know the movie. Um, Pan's Labyrinth is basically a movie that works on two levels. One is the story of this little girl um, in the midst of the Spanish Civil War and all the suffering she's going through because her family is torn apart by it. But then she discovers this, uh, this like stairwell that takes her into this magical realm. And in that realm, she's, a, she's royalty. And there are these challenges that she has to do in, in that realm that she begins to realize are impacting what's going on actually in her world. And ultimately, because this is just what I do, is I ruin movies. Ultimately, at the end, uh, I'll ruin every movie you're ever going to see, every good movie. Um, it ends with a representative sacrifice um, of this little girl. That's how every movie ends. It's how Raya the last, and the Last Dragon ends. There's a sacrifice, guys. Like, get used to it. See it. It's the call of the human heart. I'm not going to tell you how it is. It's still very much worth seeing. You see the Raya thing coming from, like, the second minute. Don't be mad at me. Guys, what I want you to see, though, is this is the human heart crying out for models of the story that is the true story of this world. It's why every single movie, it's why Disney, which is super pantheistic, super animistic, cannot find another story to tell other than a representative sacrifice dies for the, the, for the sins of others and the world is utterly recreated through it. Back to Pan's Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth, it's working on two levels. And at the very end of the movie, there's a representative sacrifice, little girl dies, but as she's dying, we get a flash into the, the fairy tale realm. And in that realm, she walks into this enormous throne room. And she's never met her father before. And her father is sitting on this, on this tall, high throne. And he says, you have done well, little one. You have passed the most important test. And the most important test was that you would shed your own blood. And then he said, and then her mother says to her, 
who's now a queen, she says, come and sit at the right hand of your father and rule and reign with him. And the coolest part of the scene is that as this is happening in this fairy tale world, you don't realize that there's this audience that has been looking on the entire time that just goes absolutely wild as the girl enters and receives the reward for what she's done. And what's happening in that fairy tale realm has also these massive implications for what's happening in the world because the sacrifice of that girl has actually brought people to a place of understanding their own need to be more like this little girl. It's also saved the life of her little sister quite literally. And so we're getting these two comparisons. Do you see what I'm doing here? This is what we're supposed to see in passages like these, that far from just a fairy tale, that there are these deeper realities about human existence that Jesus alone has given us access to, that if we see them as grandiose as they are, we are like this enormous audience looking in saying, you are doing what we've always longed for. We may not be always able to see it with our eyes, with, with our imperfect measure of what the world is, and we don't see into the throne room, but the author of Hebrews is saying, if you were there, you would cheer so hard because you would realize this is what you most needed. You have a champion. You have a representative. You have one who has brought you and your story into the presence of the only one who can forever put away what most deeply haunts you. And so Jacob's well, what I most want to say about this to us is I sense a lot of pain in our community. If I could get real for a second. Uh, this has been a brutal year for all of us. It's been a brutal year, of course, you know, physically, medically. Some of you have lost family members. I've lost family members. It's been an enormously hard year, especially for some of us financially. There's been enormous pain there, job loss, forced career change. It's been an incredibly painful year relationally. Very, very few relationships did not feel the strain of this. Marriages, friendships, parents and kids. And now we're in this season where we're being told you know, because you don't have to wear a mask in Target. Like, it's all, it's all going away. It's all better, right? And you go, it doesn't feel all better. I still feel exhausted. I still feel weary. And look, we're going to take some time as a church to grieve and work through that because I think to just jump too quickly forward it would be a massive mistake, both individually for each one of us, but also corporately as a church. So we're going to figure out how to do that well over the course of these next few months. Here's the biggest thing that I want you to hear here is there's an ancient theologian who says, when you think of Jesus as your priest, you can't think of that in a one-time way. You can't think of that as Jesus was my priest when he appeared before God with my story uh, and forgave it forever, because that's to think that you're now on your own. This ancient theologian says, Jesus became your priest in the way a mother uh, takes on that title of her child. Yes, there is this one-time moment where a mom, when she conceives and then gives birth to a child, that's why she's the mother of that child. But that title and the responsibility and the great blessing in most cases that comes with that for that child is something that persists for the lifetime of that mother. And so to say Jesus is your high priest is not to say that there is this one-time act that he did on your behalf that solved your eternal sin. It's to say that he's your priest in an ongoing way. That this is his title and role in your life. And that there is tremendous blessing when you realize that there is a place to take your pain and hurt and questions and doubt. There is a place to wrestle with God 
to say, man, what would forgiveness in this relationship look like given, given the hell that we've been through this last year? There is one that you can go to when you're weary and you say, can you really strengthen me? One of the things that, that Hebrews says is that, no, 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 approach that throne, right? By the way, isn't one of the coolest things that happens at Jesus's crucifixion, the tearing of the veil? Do you get why that's so significant now? Jesus goes in to the presence of God and then in so many words looks behind him and goes, we don't need that thing anymore. We don't need that. We don't need that veil. Because when Jesus goes in, he takes you with him and then he says, the, the only instruction that's going to come, the only practical behavioral thing that this entire passage, what Jalen will preach next week, will lead us to is draw near. Jesus says, the, the way is wide open. So come on, let me be your priest, right? Let, let, let me be that, that perfect one who can give you what you really need, right? Because to say Jesus is a priest, you might feel like the comparison to a really great mom. Maybe you had a really great mom. I have a really great mom. Some of you have lost mothers and know the tremendous pain of that, right? There's, there's a lot of experience with mom. The comparison is, is infinitely too small between Jesus and even a, a, like a really great transcendent mom. He is every need that you've ever had. He can fulfill it. And he asks you to do one thing. You have to draw near. And my fear is that we will get through the entire letter of Hebrews and we will continue to think that we can intellectualize our way to the experience of Jesus's priesthood or that we can perform our ways, that we can morally perform our way into acceptedness before him and then get what we most long for. When actually what he's calling us to do is just, just come in, talk to me. In some ways, this profound theology lands with, this is why prayer is so irreducibly central to the life of faith. If you never talk to him, if you never draw near, if you never expect him to speak back through his word, if you never bring the hard things, right? I'll, I'll give you a tip from, from my parents. My parents weren't like daily devotions kinds of parents, but they raised us in the faith primarily through one strategy. When stuff got hard in our home, you know where we went? We didn't go to each other. We went, we went vertical. Let's pray about it. Let's pray about it. And that did something to, to a young little heart that, that probably was more than, than years of, you know, memorizing scripture, not at all to throw shade, a beautiful thing to do. But if we never draw near, we have left on the table the absolute most tremendous blessing that we have. So with all the pain, with all of the hurt, with all of the confusion that you have, me as your pastor, I'm going to try and lead you through a grieving process. I'm going to try and lead us through a corporate forgiveness process at some point in the next few months. But would you pray? Would you go to God with that stuff? Would you like actually draw near and bring that stuff to him in this season. Because my guess is you might be profoundly surprised by what happens when you actually walk through that non-existent veil, approach that throne where he now rests and rules and treat him like your actual provision. Treat him like the one who has your name on his hands, right? Sometimes we think we go into Jesus and say, Jesus, I know it's been a while. He goes, are you kidding me? I got you tatted on me. Like, do you realize what a beautiful image that is? Jesus, let me just remind you, here's what's been going on. No, 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 you, you're written on my heart. You ain't got to tell me anything. Just, just, just talk to me. What's going on? Before the throne of God above, we have a, we, 
We have a strong, perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for us. Your name is graven on his hands. Your name is written on his heart. And you should know that while in heaven he stands, nothing, no temptation, no doubt, no sin, can call you away from that, can say you don't belong there anymore. That's not where you actually live. You do not belong in the overlap of heaven and earth. No tongue can bid you thence depart. Would you pray with me?